Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette, Editor-in-Chief, Dominic Ponsford. And this week, we're learning all about the future of climate reporting. And joining me on the podcast sofa is Press Gazette reporter Bron Maher. Hi, Dom. How's it going? Hi, Bron. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So climate reporting, there's a lot of it around in sure. We've been writing about it a lot more over the last year. It's become a lot more mainstream, hasn't it? We have. I think Charlotte, maybe a year or two ago, wrote a whole thing about like how the Daily Express had gone to being this big green newspaper, for example, from its climate skeptic roots. Yeah, I think the sun's become a lot more on board. Yeah, so I think everyone's sort of in the, pretty much in the same place. There's not much climate change scepticism nowadays in, in the press that, that I've seen. And to find out more about it, who, who did we speak to this week? We spoke to Leo Hickman, who is the editor of Carbon Brief. And Carbon Brief is a non-profit news site that is kind of a funny mix of consumer-focused and I'd say maybe wonk-focused <laughs> climate reporting. Yeah, and it's been making waves for a few years now, hasn't it? And so many waves that it won a British Journalism Award in December as the, it won our Energy and Environment Prize, I seem to recall. Yep, they, they've got their moment in the sun. The sun is unfortunately getting hotter, but never mind. Yeah, and Leo's journalist with a great heritage at The Guardian for many years. And do you say Carbon Brief's been going now since 2010? Is that right? Yeah, I think they started in 2010 and he became editor, or at least he joined Carbon Brief in 2015. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. News avoidance is one issue. The like, It's one of those sort of bit like Ukraine, one of those stories that we fatigue sets in after a while because it can be a bit depressing and people avoid it. I guess there's the idea how, about how a non-profit site like Carbon Brief maintains its independence. It must have some independence there, otherwise we wouldn't have given it an award. <laughs> we've, otherwise we'd have dropped the ball majorly. Yeah, a lot, a lot more helpful advice, I imagine, from Leo. So how did you start? I started, honestly, by just saying... What is Carbon Brief? Tell me some more about who you are. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the kind of site that I think, for me at least, drifts along my social feed every so often with lots of very well-done graphs and data. And I'm like, oh, cool. But as someone who is very much a lay reader and not super focused on climate, I don't often delve deep into it. So I wanted to ask, is there anything I'm missing here? Can you tell me more about who you are exactly? We've been going about a decade, a bit more than a decade, actually. And I guess how we would self-describe ourselves is we are specialist websites reporting and covering climate change specifically. 
And we broaden that out over the years to also include beyond the science of climate change, but also to include related issues, obviously energy policy, transport, food and agriculture, deforestation. And we've also over that time broadened beyond the UK. We're obviously based in the UK. We have an office in London, but we now have a kind of pretty international team. And as you'd expect with a global issue like climate change, we need, we need journalists around the planet. Really. And our format of journalism, I think, is probably quite unique to what we do as well. So obviously we know many publications and titles and broadcasters cover climate change now, but we're known for our sort of long form, in-depth, explanatory journalism, effectively trying to explain the hell out of what is quite complicated science and policy. And that's what we're known for. And also we cover this very much from a sort of a neutral position, if you like. We don't advocate, we don't have a position or skin in the game in the fact that we don't, we actually don't publish any op-eds, comment pieces, editorials, just in the business of, of explaining. And we do a lot, we use a lot of data visualization in that. So our articles are well known for their kind of charts and maps. And we've had a lot of success over the years with particular format and obviously it plays well on social media as well. It's, so we're a bridge between mainstream journalism and academic writing. It's mm. very thoroughly cited. And so who ends up usually being your audience? Is it mostly sort of policy types, academics, or do you have more of a lay audience? Our, I guess our core audience, our kind of intended audience, people we're imagining in our minds when we're producing our journalism are, as you say, the people who are some way, shape or form using this information in their professional lives. So it may be policymakers and their advisors, it may be academics, it may be NGOs and campaigners, and actually very importantly, other journalists, as I've said, other journalists are a very important audience for us. But we also have, and increasingly have now, what I guess we describe as our sort of halo audience, the people who find our journalism through searches, social media or whatever. Um, and We've seen two instances of that over the recent years, which have been quite interesting phenomenon. So when Donald Trump was elected in whenever that was late 2016, we suddenly found a big surge in visitors from North America. And it was effectively people just doing very simple Google searches. What is climate change? Is it caused by humans? That kind of thing. And we found a big, as a result of Donald Trump's kind of climate skepticism, his, his attempt to pull the US out of the Paris Agreement. And then in 2019, we saw another big surge where Greta Thunberg and the school strikes and Extinction Rebellion, when all that kind of um, mushroomed up and became this big kind of social phenomenon, we found a lot of people, not largely because Greta has, herself shared some of our content repeatedly on Instagram and Twitter, we found a lot of, of her followers and people coming towards our content. So whereas we would probably think of our audience being quite geeky or nerdy or in the weeds, enjoying the detail and the nuance of our journalism, we found these other audiences gravitating towards our content because they like our animations or data or whatever it might be. So it's been an interesting journey over the last kind of few years as the audience has grown. And that surge in US visitors, has that kind of been sustained or some US outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post that benefited in the kind of Trump era, they've seen like a bit of a slump in the years after. Have you had any of that or is it like stayed at a high level so i can't quite remember when the crossover point was but i think it was about 
2017 when for the first time we noticed that our audience was bigger in the US than in the UK and it's been that way ever since so I can't quite remember the top of my head what the percentage is now but that is a very important stress. Are there any places where you didn't expect it to go down well but it did or vice versa? Turkey one was an interesting example so we it did incredibly well on Facebook in Turkish when we translated it. We didn't boost it, we didn't touch it, it just organically happened. But that was a kind of slightly random and unexpected moment. But yeah, it's always fun to try test our journalism elsewhere, outside of that, as I said, the Anglosphere. Mm. And I know you're funded by the European Climate Foundation, which I understand from your website, financed you to the tune of about £850,000 in the 2021 financial year. So obviously, there's this idea that for a long time, there was a great deal of money flowing into climate skeptic journalism. Is Carbon Brief supposed to be an antidote to that? Yeah, it's a good question. When we launched, and that was late 2010. I wasn't at Carbon Brief then. I took over as editor in 2015, but I was working at The Guardian at that point. And so I was very familiar with with the debate, if you like, at that point and the way media were covering climate change more than a decade ago. And there was, for about a year or so, particularly the UK media was really dominated with coverage of the so climate gate set of emails from the University of East Anglia and the kind of, the, the fallout from that. I myself was covering that a lot when I was at the Guard. And Carbon Reef was pretty much launched as a direct response to that, to try and be a corrective and rebuttal against some of, at the time, the sort of very misleading reporting around climate science. So it was very much born out of a corrective and a, a fact check and a rebuttal, some blogging service, if you like, for climate science specifically. And then in 2013, I think it moved much more into energy policy with, I don't remember the summer of 2013, the Daily Mail in particular ran a kind of almost relentless campaign against wind farms. And there was, again, it then led to a lot of very sort of spurious and misinformed and misleading kind of claims about energy policy more widely. And Carbon Brief at the time moved in into that. And in terms of the funding, Carbon Reef has always been funded via philanthropic grant, which is quite unusual, I think, and in terms of how journalism, I think it's becoming increasingly more common. And I think hopefully we're a really good case study of how it can work, how form or funding of journalism can produce highly trusted and respected and impactful public interest journalism. And the relationship with the funding is really interesting. So when I arrived at Carbon Reef, obviously I had a very big question about how does that work? And it's been a really great relationship in a way because the funders know how important the trust and authority and respect of a publication is in terms of it, if it's going to have impact in, through its journalism. So it makes sense for both parties to ensure there's a very tight editorial file around our publication and around our team of journalists. Um, because it's in both parties' interests. It's not in a funder's interest to be interfering or asking questions or driving coverage because it become the readers are clever. They the test would quickly fail in terms of people working out what journalism is being driven by that. So it's been a tremendous model in a way. And we've actually seen a lot of growth in the last couple of years. Carbon Brief has really grown in the last couple of years in terms of team. We're, think we're almost 20 of us now. And I think there's 14 of us in the UK, whereas two, three years ago, there was seven, eight of us. Actually, you make an interesting point because on the on the nonprofit thing, a lot of, pe- a lot of the time people will worry that with journalism predominantly funded through philanthropy, 
there's always a risk that you're completely dependent on this person or this group for all your money. But you're saying essentially, sure, but if it's going to be if it's going to do well, you have to have that donor not interfere at all. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's that that's the relationship I I guess as the editor I have to have the fund. So I have to have that conversation, and I did have that conversation immediately as soon as mm-hmm. I took over back in 2015. Um, we all know the score on that. I have a pretty hard line on that because I know that fundamentally it would, as I said before, it would undermine the project critically. That relationship wasn't structured in in that way. But I think interestingly, so we. To date, we've been 100% funded through philanthropy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's served us amazingly well, and we've done some fantastic journalism, had a lot of impact over that bit over a decade. But I think we now are an interesting point in kind of carbon briefs of evolution and journey, if you like, particularly with the rapid internationalization of our team over the last two years or so. Whereas there's, no, there's nothing to say we have to be forevermore only be funded by philanthropy. They're like all publications and all outlets where it makes sense to diversify your funding and look at other forms of income. And I think we're probably at that point now where we're beginning to look at that. In fact, just before COVID, for example, in early 2020, I was just looking into sourcing and booking a venue in London to hold a kind of a conference, I felt that our brand recognition and reach and reputation was strong enough for us to try maybe seeing whether we could put on an event or a half-day conference or whatever it was, whatever it was. And COVID knocked that on the head a bit. We dabbled a bit with webinars, but not paid for webinars, but it's certainly an interesting model. We have very successful newsletters, email newsletters, and obviously for many, many outlets these days, that's becoming an important thing, but they're all free at the moment because we're funded mm-hmm. via philanthropy. But there's nothing to stop us perhaps continuing to develop in that. And then maybe for some particular audiences, a revenue model around that, which you, we could do some paid for newsletters, for example, or do some bespoke content that is done to get not paywall so much, but some, some sort of membership scheme where you get additional content if you join the kind of Combry Plus model. I think we're at a really interesting an exciting point now where we've spent a decade building up our our brand, if you like, and our reputation as, I would say, one of the world's leading publications on climate change. And it makes sense to look to, look to see what we can do next. Mm, there is money in the niches, as they so often say. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
Carbon Brief recently published an analysis of UK newspaper editorials about climate, with one of the standout takeaways being that they're writing a lot more about nuclear power and fracking over the last year. First off, I'm interested, what prompted Carbon Brief to set up this kind of monitoring of media output in the first place? At first, it was a function of the fact that every morning we send out an email to our subscribers called the Daily Briefing, which is effectively a detailed summary of the last 24 hours of media coverage relating to climate and energy. And it's it, very well received and has a lot of kind of, I guess we call them now influencers, but a lot of whether it's, we know it's read at ministerial level, for example, here in the UK and widely read by civil servants, journalists, etc. So we track the media really incredibly closely, which includes obviously newspaper editorials. And a few years ago, we decided to actually, well, we're doing this anyway, why not? Let's just start a database, an interactive database, which will allow readers to or academics or whoever wants to do it, to actually over time see and analyze and reread or whatever they want to do and cross compare editorials across different newspapers. Because there is quite a range, obviously, there's the normal left right divide between many issues, but on climate change and energy, it's really quite pronounced across the UK national newspapers. So that's why we decided to do it. And then we had about two years ago, I think it was, or 18 months ago, a PhD researcher at University of Exeter called Sylvia Hayes. She was working with us and embedded with us for a period of time for her own research that she was doing into how climate change is being reported by the media. And she actually had the idea that actually we could do some sentiment analysis on these editorials and actually do some deeper analysis. And that's where the first idea came from. So we did that about a year ago, which was looking back over the past the whole archive we had over the past decade. And that was really fascinating to see the journey, if you like, that many particularly right-leaning newspapers have been on climate change over that decade from being out-and-out skeptic at the beginning of the decade, the 2010 period, really not bothering with those kind of we, we, do, we don't believe the science kind of editorials. Whereas, if you like, their skepticism has moved more towards the policy arena, which I would argue is the healthier place to have that debate rather than trying to debate the science, let's debate the policy, which is where we seem to be at now. And then with the Ukraine crisis last year and cost of living and obviously energy prices being dominating through 2022, we saw it would make sense a year later to go back and look back specifically at 2022, which is the analysis we published earlier this week, which obviously you, you know, Press Gazette kindly also covered. And it did, it did throw out some really interesting new new trends and to see the impact that the cost of living and energy crisis has had on the national newspaper debate, if you like, around some of these issues around energy security, clear power, fracking, renewables, etc. Mm. What was the most striking finding for you? I think personally for me, it was that the Sun and the Sun on Sunday between them had published 32 editorials in the calendar year of 2022, promoting and pushing for fracking which I've never seen a newspaper be so relentless in its campaigning and lobbying for a particular energy solution, right. if you like, or we can debate whether it is a solution or isn't. But that felt remarkable. I, it was just relentless. Even when we were doing the research for our email newsletter each day, there were times when you would go, hang on, didn't the sun run this editorial just three or four days ago? It just seemed very willful, if you like, that they were just relentlessly pushing out these editorials. I'd be fascinated to know what their readers made of it, because it seemed almost kind of Groundhog Day. These reviews, or at least the ones I've looked at, have generally been focused on the print media. Do you look at the broadcasters as well? 
Interestingly, we want to, but it's a lot more challenging to do it. There's a certain amount of automated analysis you can do with text-based, which obviously we get the text of those newspaper editorials and mm. do that, but it still requires a researcher to sit down and actually score by hand, if you like, or by eye, but to actually go back and watch, I don't know, 365 editions of the 10 o'clock news. Yeah. That is an incredible, there are academics who are trying to do that, but I've spoken to them because we would be interested in the findings if and when they can do that. But I think they've been waiting for the magic day that some kind of automated magic AI tool can help with that, but it hasn't quite arrived yet. Are there any concerns I suppose you have about the broadcasters not having taken a proper look at them yet? Potentially because of the way they're regulated through Ofcom, I think we see less what I would describe as highly dodgy and misleading coverage of climate change on the bro broadcast media. And it's more cleanly, it's more, I would say, due to the Ofcom rules, a bit more cleanly, cleanly delineated of what is news, what is balance, et cetera, mm -hmm. versus what is opinion. Whereas I think with the print media, under IPSA or self-regulation or whatever it may be, I think it's much more blurred, to be honest, from my experience. And I think generally the news reporting, the news pages of the national newspapers, I think in the UK, has improved dramatically in terms of its reliability and accuracy and fair coverage of climate science, particularly but the opinion pages, which obviously includes the editorials, is still an incredibly mixed bag, to be honest particularly, and there's still almost daily ridiculous columns written about about climate change, which are just flat out and misleading. But because of the way Ipso rules are put together and worded, basically comment and opinion is fair game, it seems, and it's incredibly hard to really challenge anything that anyone writes on the opinion pages when it comes to the accuracy around science and things. We saw that mm. obviously with COVID as well. I suppose we, we just touched on a concern that you have with how the press is sometimes writing about climate. Are there any kind of more heartening trends that you've noted over the last few years? I think a particular heartening trend is employment of journalists on this piece. <laughs> so that's always the heartening trend to see jobs being created or increased and boosted around this. And not just the increasing number of climate reporters and people covering these specialisms, but the moving out of the kind of ghettoization really of climate. It was when I was writing for The Guardian 10, 15 years ago, if you were a climate reporter, and I'm not sure anyone I even self-described in that way at the time, but you were, you were a subset of the environmental reporters who were a subset of the science beat, who were a subset of the news desk. It was a kind of, you were a pretty lowly operator if you were a climate reporter. Whereas now, I think, and I think this is really interesting watching the graduates coming out of journalism schools and colleges is that when I've given talks to students and things compared to say when I was doing it five, 10, whatever years ago, it's really interesting to see how climate journalism is now aspirational. People want to do that coming out of college or uni or whatever in the way that they wanted to be a sports reporter or the foreign <laughs> correspondent, all those kind of the perceived to be glamorous roles within journalism. Now mm. people see climate journalism as I would say up there as being something they really aspire to want to do because they know that it's important. They know it has impact. It has global impact. And to be honest, every angle of journalism these days, you can probably argue there is a climate angle to be bound if you look hard enough. I think it, 
Yeah, it's there's a lot of interesting trends that have gone on around climate change and the way the media cover it, covers it. But in terms of just the volume of climate journalists now there are, and you've seen, particularly in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow last year, you saw The Express, The Sun, number of titles publicly saying we're going to take this seriously, we're going to cover this in depth, we're going to assign budget and reporters to this topic and to not just be, say, The Guardian covering it in depth. That's been good. But I think post-COP26, with the attention away now from the UK leading that UN conference, I think that has been a somewhat inevitable and predictable slight dip again now. So it, the challenge really, as always, it's with the editors. It's, the edit, it's those editors need to commission it, take it seriously, put it on the front page, all those, lead the bulletins, all those things that we know need to happen for that topic to be covered in the way that it needs to be covered, I think. Mm, everyone appreciates, I think, or most people appreciate at this stage that it is uh, rather important to keep covering the climate, but that struggles against the fact that it is a somewhat gloomy story. <laughs> and with so many of us talking at the moment about people switching off from bad news, how do you, at Carbon Brief, try to come to grips with that you are working with what could be fundamentally quite depressing subject matter? Yeah, there's a few things to that. There's almost, as a practicing working journalist or team of journalists, there's almost, to be honest, like almost like a sort of mental health issue around professionally working relentlessly day in, day out on, yeah, as you say, a pretty profound and at times pretty depressing subject. And I think that hasn't really been discussed, I think, generally, I think, amongst the wider community of journalists, particularly given there's been an increase in, in, in people being assigned and covering this beat. I think in terms of how Carbon Brief views it, is that we are a specialist publication and this is our specialism. In a way, it's not quite the same as being in a mainstream broadcaster or mainstream national newspaper or whatever, where you're competing against a whole range of other topics, where classic conversation where you go to pitch in morning conference or to your editor, hey, I've got this great story. It's about, you know, melting glaciers in Antarctica. And the editor just goes, didn't we have that? Didn't we hear that story two weeks ago? And it's that slow burn repeating story. And how do you keep getting editors interested in that? And it is really challenging. But I think as it becomes increasingly all-encompassing as a challenge and a kind of and a decade upon decade long challenge, it's not a near-term, short-term issue which will dominate a news agenda like a war or a recession which might go on for a 18 months or whatever, we know now it's already baked in that we as journalists or as a profession or an industry or sector or whatever you want to describe it, we will be covering this all this century. And it, there'll be ups and downs, there'll be new technologies developed, new leaders elected, new political cycles, all sorts of things going on. But it is the, I don't think it's a cliche to say it is the story of the century. We know it's going to be here and through all of our through all of our coverage in a way, whether it's business journalism, foreign, local, you know, whatever beat you're on, you're going to be covering climate change through through this decade and definitely far beyond it. So I think it there is and that doesn't work with short attention spans and people in the current trend of what we call what we're all calling news avoidance, where people just don't want to be on that doom scroll on their phones anymore and seeing bad news. They, they want something else. So it is very challenging. And I think 
but I think it's more challenging for mainstream media than it is for us because it this is our this is our domain. This is what we do every single day. We're just trying to explain the latest developments as best we can. Wow, I think that all of that put together a really interesting picture of kind of like the economics of where climate journalism is going with all these like fresh-faced, really excited journalists coming into the field with the fact that it, as you say, will be generating stories for unfortunately quite a while to come. And that if you've got this kind of specialist audience, that's a group that can be tapped for potentially commercial sustainability in the future. It's That's certainly the hope. And we've obviously found with recent success with Dr. Simon Evans, our senior policy editor, obviously recently won the British Press Awards and he won the Energy and Environment category and he was up against Sunday Times, BBC, Bloomberg, Guardian, the big guys compared to the, it was a bit of a David and Goliath scenario for us. But that hopefully is a signal that we can have cut through with our type of journalism that in terms of most mainstream senses, is not necessarily the thing people would immediately reach for because they feel it's maybe too in-depth or maybe a bit too academic or whatever. But we have found and carved out this niche for ourselves, if you like. And we do find lots of other journalists relying or using or quite often citing and sharing our findings and our charts and things. And that's a really great place for us to be in, I think. And we hopefully are part of this wider ecosystem of journalists who are covering this topic. I think there's space for all of us to be doing our own thing, to be honest. Thanks, Bron. Great interview. Always good to hear more from Leo. I think, yeah, definitely one of the top practitioners of environmental journalism in the UK. So, yeah, you, you learn a bit more about Carbon Brief. As someone who was a, who'd flirted with it, but not really gone much further, what, what was it surprised you about the interview? Or what kept stay with you? I think I mentioned it in the interview, but the thing that probably really surprised me the most is this idea that there's this there's this whole crop of bright-eyed young things leaving journalism schools, all terribly excited to cover the environment. Which I mean, it makes sense, right? It's like a very worldly thing, but also it's funny to have this set up against what is fundamentally a deeply depressing story, <laughs> and then you've got all these uh, these younger people who are like. Yes, let's go. Let's change the world. Quite an optimistic take on quite a pessimistic subject. And what do you think the take-homes are for sort of other publishers who want to maybe raise their game a little bit when it comes to reporting on this important topic? For other publishers, as uh, as so often we find, I think it's that kind of uh, riches and niches idea or riches and niches, depending on your pronunciation. But it only works if you do <laughs> one of the pronunciations as a rhyme. But they have this big audience of really plugged in academics, policymakers, but then also lay people. And that's pretty fertile ground to implement if they end up doing this, something like a paywall or paid newsletters. And as ever, it's that kind of thing where if you have expertise, that's pretty monetizable. Yeah, there's a fantastic audience there and a, and a massive market, isn't there, in terms of money that's being spent in this area. So, yeah, I just think I'll be around for a while to come. And also, obviously, that kind of thing. That That is, if you've got the experts, experts aren't going to turn off just because it's depressing. There's no, there's no news avoidance on that. Yeah, they're into it anyway. Yeah. Thanks, Bron. You've been listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Dominic Ponsford, Bron Maher, and expertly engineered, as always, by Adrian Bradley. You can read more about the issues discussed here on pressgazette.co.uk. Please check out the site and also sign up for our email newsletters. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.